Hey there, this is Andy Baker, and you're listening to the Baker's Dozen podcast, where I serve up analysis of current TV series from the perspective of a development executive and screenwriter, and I do so 13 bites at a time. This is FetCast number three, where I deep dive into episode three of the Book of Boba Fett, The Streets of Mos Espa. Welcome back, everybody, first of all. Second of all, the focus of this week's episode, I often will take some critique from the people who listen to the podcast. And one thing I often hear, whether it's when I'm writing a blog or doing a podcast, is that I can be a bit on the negative side. And where that usually comes from is this place of, I I'm, I'm don't spend as much time pointing out the positive things because the positive things are positive. And I'm trying to give feedback, actionable feedback that will help make a project better. And it can be a bit of a blind spot for me that I end up seeing things that I feel need improvement and just pouring a lot of energy in there and forgetting sometimes that people like to hear the good things. I'm the same way as a writer. I, I like to hear some positive things. Anyway, this podcast, this episode, I'm going to spend uh, a chunk of time talking about things that I'm really enjoying about the book of Boba Fett. And towards the end, I'll talk about a few things that questions I have and other development issues that I wonder why they made choices that they made the usual, but I'm going to try to be a little on the positive side. But with that in mind, let's get on to number one. 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 Casting of minor roles. This podcast in general is about the writing side of things. And so I don't dwell too much or spend a lot of time on issues of costuming or set design or casting, that kind of thing. Although casting does play a key role and they're the ones who are saying your lines and them being able to sell it plays a key role in whether or not the script gets pulled off. So I just wanted to point out two casting choices, which I enjoyed one, which started previously and one, which just began this uh, episode, but having the character of Lortha Peel played by Steven Root, Steven Root, uh, I enjoy him in small doses, which is why him in a minor role is great. He's immediately smarmy. We know that he's not telling us the whole truth from the get go. And it sets us up to ultimately be inclined to side with the gang members that we end up meeting later. But just watch his face as he sells these lines. And he, you don't have to overwrite the script to sell the underlying currents and the tensions and how conflicted this particular character is and how he's trying to convey that he is a supplicant, but is just brazenly trying to manipulate Boba Fett into doing what he wants him to do, which is getting rid of these kids. And Steven Root does just a wonderful job in selling that great casting and great acting. He sells the script and allows you to use fewer words to get across what you want to get across. And then the second one, I wanted to just point out Matt Berry as the voice of 8D8. Love it. I love what we do in the shadows. If you're not watching that show, you're doing yourself a grave disservice. You really should. The movie is fantastic. The show just extends that brilliance. My son and I are currently watching season three 
And his role as Laszlo is so good. And he so embodies the role at this point. He's clearly gotten comfortable with it over the first two seasons. And he's just fully come into his own. And I love it. The only thing that throws me is that 8D8 really should be talking about things like carnal relations and all of the other stuff that they talk about in what we do in the shadows. Obviously not Star Wars slash Disney appropriate, but love his voice, love his character. I'll be interested to see what they do with this character over the rest of the season in that torture droid turned semi-protocol droid who is trying to not offend Boba Fett and where that character goes by the end of the season. Hopefully he goes on a little bit of an arc because you don't want to waste Matt Berry. You want him to keep bringing all of his personality to the role. Again, Love Stephen Root. Love Matt Berry. Great choices. Dude. Dual timeline tensions. So watching Boba Fett sit there meeting with Stephen Root's character, Lorth Appeal, you can't help but be struck by like, why is Boba Fett of all people sitting here listening to a supplicant bring his water issues and gang issues right now? And it's the dual timelines that gives this scene some tension and allows us to raise that question. Why did Boba Fett kill Bib Fortuna and take on this role? Even if he wanted to kill Bib Fortuna, like why does he want to become a, a gang leader? We see what has happened to him in the not so distant past and with the Tuscans and obviously the tragedy that struck this episode. And so he must have an agenda in the present day. Is he looking to tear all of this down and give it to the Tuscans or just turn it to some sort of semblance of democracy? He, he doesn't want to be on Tatooine long-term as the Huts told us, you know, this is just a pointless rock, but he, Boba Fett must have an agenda and killing Bib Fortuna. And I'll dig into this a little bit later. Is that connected to ultimately the syndicate and them being responsible for the death of the Tuscans, not the Kintin Raider gang? I'll be curious where they go with that. But that tension of knowing what happened in the not so distant past and what Boba Fett finds himself doing now he must have a compelling reason. Like he's doing all of this to accomplish getting revenge or returning to the Tuscans, uh, returning the favor since they saved his life, his ability to then try to right some wrongs here on Tatooine and leave the Tuscans better than he found them, given that they saved his life and gave his life some meaning. He is a changed person. He is a Tuscan at the end of that rites of passage. And so he is acting, even though he's wearing the armor again, he is a Tuscan Raider accomplishing Tuscan Raider goals. And so if he's there to take down the huts and the pikes and anybody else, he wants to accomplish something. And the next few episodes really should make that perfectly clear to us. I'd be shocked if that's not the case. Three. Three, making the world feel lived in. One of the benefits of operating in the Star Wars universe is that it feels lived in because it has been lived in by all these different stories. There's all this, you're joining this tapestry. And so obviously some of this is happening right after Return of the Jedi. 
and we're connecting to the Mandalorian. And so you borrow on the power of those things. And so any location brings with it some history. We're in Mos Eisley. That goes all the way back to the very first movie. And, and so there's you know, power to all of that. And they are doing a really nice job in capitalizing on that. When we go into the dunes and we see the impaled stormtrooper helmets and Peli Mato in the background, Amy Sedaris's character from The Mandalorian, along with the three droids. When we keep revisiting these places, having some shared history, recognizing these places, it makes it feel like a real location. And obviously, if you've watched Clone Wars and Rebels and now Bad Batch, like they keep revisiting these places. And yeah, it can feel repetitive sometimes in the sense like, why should Tatooine be this important? It's a huge galaxy out there. And I get that. I feel that sometimes. But at the same time, the ability to revisit these places where we have some history and those memories come back, there's some power to that, some nostalgia to that, but also emphasizes the interconnectedness of these characters and their shared history. And the world looks lived in. It looks worn down. There are broken down walls and there's, everything has some wear and tear to it, including obviously just looking at Boba Fett's armor with the dent and the famous dent and the scratches and all of that. So the whole place looks lived in, the world feels lived in, and that makes it feel real. And that level of reality within our fiction, it makes it one of these universes as one of my dear friends has put it, it's a universe worthy of devotion that we like spending time in this place and they are pouring time, energy, and money into making it feel like a place that uh, is familiar to us and that we want to spend time in. So that's a really good job. Four. Embracing theme. So we're seeing in these stories, I, I said several episodes ago, that they would be the, the two storylines in the past and the present would need to have intersections, right? Intersectionality that they need to reflect one another, but also, you know, then that's just plot, but also themes, metaphors should resonate in both so that they play one off of the other and help us understand each of the timelines together. And so this idea is you showed up all over this episode, this idea of pitting characters against one another. That in the past timeline, we have Boba Fett going and talking to the Pike leader and the syndicate. And they say, you have to deal with the Kenton Raiders gang. We're only going to pay one of you. And so those two are set against one another. And then in the present day, we have the Huts saying, we're taking off of, we're leaving this planet and Boba Fett, you should probably do that too. But just so you know, there's another syndicate in town that the mayor has given, has promised this territory to, and obviously it's the Pike and the syndicate. And so the one resonates with the other, this theme of, okay, being pitted one against the other. Did Boba Fett learn the lesson? in the past storyline that he is being sent to deal with the Kenton writers. And I'll dig into this more later. Is there, is this sort of the Pike's goal all along? And again, we'll dig into that. Did Boba Fett learn the lessons from that so he can apply those lessons in this present day that he can't, he's not going to be manipulated or allow himself to be manipulated because even Boba Fett articulates it 
they would benefit from their enemies fighting one another. So he clearly did learn the lesson of the past. How is he going to apply that in the present day? Because he's got the syndicate to worry about. I'd say they're leaving, but can we really trust that? Never mind the fact that we got introduced to three different groups apparently vying for power in this area and having very tenuous peace that's got to explode. But again, I will, we'll dig into that later. But then you even have a little moment, and I, I don't know if this was their thinking. It may have just been a, meant to be a humorous moment, but I can't help but they sort of thought that you know, they must have thought this through. That shot of the rat being attacked by a bird and then eaten by the frog-like creature, that's one creature attacking another, and while they're busy with that, being eaten by a third. Seems to me that's just reinforcing that metaphor and theme of one against the other, pitting people against each other so that a third, more powerful force can wait and then strike. So I'll be curious to see how that plays out, but I love when you embrace theme and have things resonate across storylines. That's when things can get really interesting and powerful. And that's why we do storytelling, right? It's to connect things on various textual levels so that they resonate more deeply. So on to another theme. Five. Family. So we heard last episode, this whole idea of running a family is more challenging than being a bounty hunter. And so this issue of family is coming up. And obviously we had the whole dream sequence or the vision quest. And we had Boba Fett with you. You had the two trees and is one Jango Fett and one Boba Fett. And he has to struggle with that and emerge from that. And he's been reborn as a Tuscan. But they went out of their way in this episode to show us once again young Boba being le left abandoned by his father leaving on the ship. And what I'm wondering, so they're reminding us of that, and, and it's child Boba, I, I wonder, and I'll dig into this more in a little bit, this idea that is the kid dead, the, the, the kid Tuscan and the female Tuscan warrior, is Boba Fett feeling the responsibility of a sort of father figure is that why he can't just leave and abandon Tatooine? Because that would be like his father when his father abandoned him. And is the kid alive somewhere? Does he need to try and save him? And does he need to make this world a better place, a safer place, so that he is not just abandoning this child? Maybe the kid is dead, and again, we'll dig into that. But this idea of we keep seeing this image of young Boba Fett putting his hand up on the glass as his father flies away, is that going to be echoed at the end of this series where Boba Fett has to fly away, but he's again leaving the planet or at least this area a better place for this kid to live and thrive? We shall see. Six. Pacing. Now, you might think of pacing as being a director's choice, but it comes across on the page as well. And this show has, at least this episode, but throughout the series, there's a languid pace to it. It's unhurried. We have the two storylines, and they're not really rushing through anything. And it makes sense that there's a confidence that comes with being a Star Wars story. You can do that. They're committed budget-wise. They're committed into seeing the vision through. And it's only one season. 
so they don't have to worry about trying to earn the right to five seasons or whatever. Maybe they'll come back to it if they want to. But, and so that unhurried pace where we get a longer shot of Boba Fett riding the Bantha and we get that sense of foreboding as he leaves and that emerges from the pace with which he leaves and we get lots of shots of the various members of the tribe looking at him before he leaves. The kid is watching him, the others watching him, establishing all of that. And, you know, then we see him heading back and seeing the smoke and it's a slow unfolding of tragedy and the, the pace really works in allowing some space to, for us to think, to anticipate, to wonder, to worry, and ultimately to feel. And, uh, I'm enjoying that pacing and that's really, I, I can be very impatient and there have been times where I'm like, oh, just get to more story. But when you just allow yourself to feel what it is they're trying to ask you to feel and start looking at it like, why are you choosing this pacing? That allows you to take it for what it is. This is not groundbreaking television. This is not world-class television. And I probably at some point should talk about shows that I really do hold up as exemplars of television, things like The Wire and Breaking Bad, but we'll get to that some other time. But for now, I'm enjoying the pacing of this show. It's intentional. It's on the page just as much as it is on the screen. And I'm enjoying the choices. Seven. Going dark. I think I've talked about this before that you go back and watch things like the Clone Wars and Rebels and whatnot, and they're willing to be pretty dark, surprisingly so, given that the audience can be you know, tweens, even younger. This show, having the Tuscans be wiped out like that, and I know I, I was reading some articles this week and apparently people predicted this would happen and it makes sense that for not seeing Tuscans around him in the future, something must have happened. And I can see that. I just didn't think they'd go this far where this extensive of a tragedy. And yet you could feel it coming, this episode particularly. And it's the essence of tragedy. I've talked about this before, I think when I was talking about Wheel of Time, but the essence and the heart of tragedy is that you don't want it to come, but we're prepared for it. And we know it's going to unfold on some underlying level. And then when it happens, it all makes sense. We're just fighting it tooth and nail. And the classic example for me, since I taught it so many times, was Of Mice and Men. And when I taught high school teaching Hamlet, you can feel that ending coming. It has to end that way, but we don't want it to, but it makes sense. And the tone and feel when Boba Fett left and then as he's heading back, the pace at which he's heading back, we know what has happened and it's terrible. And then we just have to bear witness. We see the bodies, the music, the voices of the dirge-like and the chorus of singing voices is really powerful. We see the leader, he's dead. He takes out the short gaffy stick and it's supposed to presumably evoke the thought of the child who's never going to get to turn that into his own stick. But remember, not all hope is lost here in that if you don't see a body, they're not dead. 
That's one of those fundamental tropes that uh, the female Tuscan who trained him, if you're going to show us the leader of this tribe, but not show her, given the connection that Boba Fett had with her and the connection he had with the child that you're, I can understand the resistance in showing a child's body. So that makes sense. And you can have the symbolic use of the gaffy stick, but not showing the female Tuscan that feels like an intentional omission. And so are they alive somewhere? Is that going to take over part of the storyline here is him trying to track down who did this and then him finding out that there's actually some of them who are alive. I'll be interested to see if they go there. Because otherwise, if they don't, that's really um, shortchanging the female Tuscan who helped him so very much. Finishing with the scene with him shedding some tears, but they're not pouring down his cheeks. I think that is about right for Boba Fett, that he would be emotional, but not allow it to overwhelm him because it's going to galvanize him to do something. I think the tone was just right. So their willingness to go dark fascinates me. And I'm curious to see just how far they're willing to push it. Eight. The tension of uncertainty. I'm just going to introduce the possibility that we don't know for sure that the Kintin riders actually killed the Tuscan Raiders, or if, yes, it's tagged, but anyone can use the tag. And so was the tag put there actually by the Kenton Riders taking credit for having done this? Or was it the Pikes who want Boba Fett to believe that the Kenton Riders did this? Because think about it, if the Kenton Riders, if Boba Fett, all, all of the Tuscan Raiders are dead, at least the ones he is close to. And if then Boba Fett and other Tuscans end up going and taking out the Kenton Riders, then they might not have to pay anybody, which is probably ultimately what they want out of this whole deal. They want Fett to go after the Riders. They want there to be a battle, a war between them, because then the Pikes can go back to business as usual. You turn your opposition against each other, you weaken them both. And this tension emerges from their willingness to, they've established this theme of turning people, one group against another, and now you can manifest it in different ways. And so we don't know which way this is going to go. And when you think about it, if it is very straightforward and the Kinton Riders did this to the Tuscans and then Boba Fett goes to confront them, that leaves the Pikes totally out of the equation and it becomes somewhat uninteresting with Boba Fett. We know he survives this time period, so he must succeed against the Kenton Riders. And so for him then to go to the Pikes and say, all right, uh, we want the money and we're going to, I'm going to give it to the other Tuscan Raiders, another tribe that doesn't leave you with any tension between him and the Pikes. And there are enough episodes left that they're going to need that. So you have to think that this is not as straightforward as it might seem. And that uncertainty around that tension around that makes for good storytelling. So another good thing to praise. And here I am trying to be positive. Nine. The Trojan Ranker. Just as we can't be sure about the Raiders killing the Riders, we can't be sure that we can trust the Huts delivering this Ranker. And never mind the timing of it. 
that they just sent black Kersantan to kill him. How would they know that it wasn't successful? This seems to happen right away, but setting the time thing apart, simply sending this rancor as some sort of gift as they're heading off planet, we can't really trust them. And never mind the fact that they've got Danny Trejo as the rancor keeper, who is one of that guy's, like he plays a bad guy in a million different things. So we can't trust him, but then we have to wonder again, would he be cast against type that he, we can take him at face value? And is he telling the truth about the rancor imprinting, but the tone and vibe and feel of that scene and that slowly focusing vision that the rancor has make us believe that it did happen, that it is imprinting on Boba Fett. And when Boba Fett says things like, I'm going to be riding this creature, I'm going to learn how to ride him, that we're going to end up having to see that once you introduce it, it must happen in some way, shape or form. And so how, if this is not a gift that you can trust, is there something about the rancor or is it going to be the rancor keeper is going to trigger something that he has trained into it or God forbid that there's something inside of it, whether it's a bomb, I don't know. That seems silly now that I say it out loud, but something is not going to play straight about this, but I don't think it's going to be the rancor suddenly being that it, I, I believe we're meant to think that the imprinting is real. It'd be hard for them to go back on the whole focusing vision and the way they sold that. Plus they have Boba Fett finding the magic spot to scratch him and I, I, the promise of some training. So that's going to be happening over the next few episodes. And again, the promise of him riding him. I think all of that will ultimately come to pass. And so the rancor is, you just have to wonder if the ending is going to be tragic because of something the Huts have and, and the Raker Keeper have done to the Raker that is going to play into how this plays out. Because we know Boba Fett's ultimately going to leave. Presumably, he's not going to spend the rest of his life on Tatooine. And, and he's not going to take a Raker with him, so he's going to leave it behind. And so are we going to see this arc of the Raker is left behind that it, or that it's going to die. And so we're going to get an emotional parting sequence when that happens. I'll be curious uh, to see how that goes. But uh, the other part I just wanted to mention, because so much time and effort got poured into, there's clearly an effort in the animated series as well, but also now in these live action series to redeem those who were vilified in the earlier stories or that they lack depth. And so exploring those characters and obviously with the Tusken Raiders, we get to see more about their society, how it works, reclaiming them from this very sweeping generalization that they're terrible and awful. And we get this note about them being, uh, as the ranker uh, keeper tells us, they are emotionally complex creatures. And so again, we now are seeing a side to the Rangers that we never in a million years imagined. And I like that. I like that they're trying to explore and add some depth. And I'm curious to see ultimately what happens with the Ranker because he, like everyone else, is going to have a character arc and it's going to be attached to Boba Fett and they will impact one another. And I think we're pretty much guaranteed that we are going to see riding a Ranker. And if someone had pitched that to you at the beginning of when they were talking about key moments in this show, if they pitched that at you before you had any context at all, you would have laughed. But now you want it, don't you? 10. 
time to go negative. I can't be relentlessly positive because it's not perfect. And there were things that I struggled with in this episode. I'll start with some more convenient exposition. Their opening scene, there's no reason for this briefing about the three rival factions in Mos Espa to be happening now. Uh, Boba Fett would know all of this. It would have been the first thing he asked of 8D8. And so really, this is for our benefit so that we understand all of the factions of Mos Espa and other things that are going to need to be explored over the next few episodes. But when it feels that way, they're, they're probably... If, this is a way where it, it works. They probably look for other places to insert the scene, but this is the one where it made the most sense. But again, it's convenient and I don't necessarily agree with it. There probably was a way to get some of this out earlier, but uh, yeah, it showed up here and I guess we'll just have to live with it. But connected to that, this it raises this immediate question. Like they want to brush right past this, but the simple fact, okay, so a power vacuum was created with the death of Jabba. Bib Fortuna took over. Bib Fortuna ultimately is killed by Boba Fett. And I'm going to dig into that a little bit later. Why is he allowed to step into the role of a daimyo? Is that simply if you kill the last one, you get to be the one? But in this whole line in the script and in the show that 88 says, there, everyone's just waiting to see what kind of leader you are. That line is doing a lot of work, that it explains a way that there wasn't a huge, like wars have been fought when you have thrones empty. They're just content to let him step in and because they don't want to make moves against each other and they want to see if he'd be okay. He literally has nobody. He's got Fennec at his side and we're seeing him step in at this very interesting moment but he literally has no one around him. We're seeing him assemble his team. He gets the Gamorreans in the earlier episode. And now we see him re recruiting the cyborg squad, Scad, Drash, and some unknowns. And so this idea that they're letting him take over when these alliances, at least according to 88, they were uneasy. And that's what allowed uh, Bib Fortuna to stay in power. I mean, there are a lot of ways that this could play out with the death of Bib Fortuna and Boba Fett stepping in and what the various factions chose to do when that happened. But, and you don't want to go too obvious with it. And there's a continuum from realistic to absurd as to how characters act and when something happens in the world of the story. And you need it to be, you don't want it to be too realistic because that's not what sci-fi stories do and what most stories try to avoid being predictable and obvious. But you need to be closer to realistic with an eye towards fun storytelling with possibilities and unpredictability and all of that. But when you go down this path and you leave your uh, readers slash viewers wondering, like, why would it really play out that way? When you have a very tenuous alliance between these groups and then you have someone just assassinate somebody sitting on the throne and then you're just going to kick back and see what he does. It doesn't feel quite right. And they're just trying to tell us like, nope, they just chose to do it. They will give him a quick line here saying that they're just going to wait and see what sort of leader he is. Even when you have supplicants showing up and saying, nobody respects you. And yeah, he was trying to manipulate him, but there's some truth to that line. Why is anyone accepting him in that role? If that role comes with a paycheck and there's a whole bunch of people who are out of work, look around, there's no work. Why didn't someone step in? Why didn't the Pikes step in? Why didn't 
some, why didn't they prop somebody up to step into that role? The more you look at it, the more it doesn't really hold up. And maybe you don't want to take that too close of a look, but just wanted to raise it as a point because it just feels like it's slightly convenient storytelling. 11. Slightly worried for what's up ahead. They are setting up a potential battle between the Trandoshans and Aqualish and Clatoonians and just simply having mentioned those three groups, we've seen some, but not all. It means that we need to spend some time over the next few episodes meeting representatives of each leaders and maybe some sub people in each of those areas. We need to see Boba Fett meeting with them individually, maybe, but also as a group. And we know that this is going to be thrown off and upset by Lorth Appeal does a lot of work in this episode with not a ton of lines and not being happy with what he was paid off and how he held that bag of coins. It's okay. Yes, he's going to go and tell somebody and they're not going to like it. And they're not going to like how Boba Fett is going about his business, hiring these thugs who don't want to pay the prices. They don't want the prices to fall. These various groups, they like this balance. They like the way things are. And Boba Fett is going to threaten to overthrow that. And so there's going to be conflict escalation there. And you might be asking or wondering why is that a bad thing? Why is this in the negative section? Only this, I think there's plenty of conflict that can come from there and conflict is always good. It's just every single time, every single group you introduce, that's a lot of time you're going to have to spend there. A lot of characters you're going to have to establish, a lot of agendas that you're going to have to establish and then play them off of each other. When you have three different groups, you need to know what the groups think of each other. And if there are side alliances between them and you know, how, you know, what each of them think about Boba Fett and that's a lot of business. And it's a lot of story that is going to have to be spent establishing all of this stuff so that it can then make sense as it plays out. And you either give that the time and the pages or you don't, and you just use a lot of shorthand and just let things play out and we won't feel as invested and it won't make as much sense. And so you want them to take the time, but they've just introduced a dynamic that would take a lot of time. And when you're talking about 30 to 35 minute episodes, we have a movie's length of time left in the entire series or in the entire season. And, you know, is that enough time to establish those various pieces and move them around the chessboard with one another? They're not going to be able to play chess. They're going to have to play checkers. 12. 20% wasted. Okay. That's not fair. It's not wasted, but I'm talking here about how one fifth of the episode was taken up in two things, the extended black chrysanthemum fight and that speeder bike sequence through the streets of Mos Espa. I'll tackle the first one. One of my issues with just general tropes in action storytelling that when you need one punch to knock somebody out, that's what happens. That's what works. But when you want an extended fight sequence, people end up putting up with extended pummeling where in, in another setting, they would be taken out by one punch. And so when Boba Fett is taking shots to his face from electrified brass knuckles, being wielded by a massive Wookiee who's he looks, you know, powerful and dangerous and he's a bounty hunter and he's a killer and a trained killer. 
and Boba Fett can shake that off. And then he gets, he's, we can hear his spine going through all kinds of contortions when he's in the bear hug. Borderline, it's like a whole bunch of work with the Foley dealing with, I don't know how they generate that sound, but it makes it sound like his spine is snapping. It's not like someone's cracking their knuckles. So that's my personal preference. It just drives me nuts when people are able to take excessive amounts of damage. But then you introduce all of the teenish gang members when they have to be distinctive from each other. And so one has a dagger and one has an electrified morning star and one has this power cudgel thing. And one has a gun that clearly doesn't shoot very powerful laser beams since black chrysanthemum is able to take the shot without too much damage. But when you have each character having these distinctive weapons, you have to create a moment for each one. And it's, so it's this extended fight sequence where everybody has to do their thing and they move from one location to another. And so they need to like get back to doing a second thing. And then you bring in the Gamorians and they have to have their moments and then you, but Fennec has to contribute in some way, shape or form. So she shows up and you, the button press can't be the whole thing. And so you see black chrysanthemum hanging on the edge and any of the four kids should, especially the one with the gun, just boom, shoot the Wookiee and send him down or use the cudgel, whatever the fact that pressing a button isn't enough. So she needs to pull out that, uh, little blade from her gun and fling it with impossible accuracy from that distance and do black chrysanthemum's hand. It just feels, it establishes the fact that she has that in her gun so she can use it later to open the mayor's door, whatever. It's just, everyone has to have their business and in, in, in a fighting sequence. And I get that, but some of it was absurd and it just made it by having so many people have to play a role, you end up um, needing to chew up a lot of screen time to have it. And you end up with absurd things like, okay, Boba Fett really should contribute in both parts of the fight, but hey, we'll just have him show up in a bathrobe. Like, what? Okay. Anyway, and then just because we're talking about him, Black Chrysanthemum, the fact that uh, he's this fearsome warrior and then he just runs off at the end. Did they just establish him for the Obi-Wan series? Or are we setting up a very tropey thing where Black Chrysanthemum is going to show up later and he's in debt to Boba Fett. And so he returns the favor, saves Boba Fett when he is up against it and ultimately says they're even. And the, the next time they meet, it's going to be no holds barred. Anyway, moving on to the other sequence, although I really don't want to talk about it for any length of time, between the color coded bikes and all of those characters needing to have their moments. So you can have stompy guy and you can have torch guy and you can have the girl coming down from above and like everyone has to have their moments and they all need to be distinctive and match who they are. I understand every episode needs to have some action in it, but is this the answer? This color coded, very tropey, extended chase sequence. It, it just felt, okay, we're burning through time here and they already can't give enough time to both of the parallel storylines and a fifth of the episode ultimately got chewed up in the black chrysanthemum fight and this chase, which doesn't really give us a lot of narrative development and 
we've established a bunch of kids that we now need to pay attention to over the rest of the series. And it just seems all sound and no fury, or that's probably not the best quote, but how important was this outside of the fact that you want to have action in every episode? It just felt particularly in a long extended action sequence, which doesn't involve Boba Fett until the very end, just showing up and asking a question. Is that the best use of your time? And in a show that doesn't have a lot of minutes, that's really the question they need to be asking about every single sequence. Does this need to be here? Is this a best use of our time? And were I in the room, the extended fight with Black or Santin, okay, but I would have had it be shorter. But the chase sequence out in the streets of Mos Espa, gotta be something better than that. 13. Predictions. Once again, we're going to look at the two different storylines. So we have the past storyline. We have to be wondering, what does Boba Fett do after the death of the Tuscans? He's going to go after the Kenton Riders. Feels to me, like I said before, that it's going to come out that ultimately they're not responsible for what happened. That uh, this is going to lead back to the Pikes. Or even if the Kenton Riders did do it, they did it under orders of the Pikes, that they were being paid to do it, that they don't have anything particularly against the Tuscan Raiders. and. You have to wonder, is Bib Fortuna going to be connected to that in some way, shape, or form? Because if you go back and look at the end of The Mandalorian, where they gave us the teaser for Book of Boba Fett, Fennec kills a bunch of people really swiftly, and then Boba Fett comes down, and Bib Fortuna tries to talk, and Boba Fett just shoots to kill, doesn't even want to hear it. And that does not jibe with how Boba Fett is trying to lead now. I'm going to lead through respect, not fear, but cold-blooded assassination of Bib Fortuna. Clearly Bib Fortuna did something to deserve it. And obviously we don't particularly like Bib Fortuna and we haven't since the original trilogy, but still the idea that we're going to have to bridge that time gap to find out like, how do we arrive at that place where he kills Bib Fortuna in that way? So that's got to be a part of this whole backstory as is being able to ultimately connect the dots. Why is Boba Fett out in the desert saving a Fennec, saving a Fennec that has been shot and then he fixes her up? How does that come about? I imagine that we're going to get those dots connected for us over the next few episodes. Then in the present storyline, we have to have Boba Fett going after the syndicate and the mayor ultimately but it feels like before they get that, they're going to, before we head there, we, he's going to have to deal with the unrest within the three factions within Mos Espa. We need to, as I said before, meet these various groups, understand their roles with one another, and with an eye towards a larger goal of FET trying to unify all of them to stand up to the Pike. The Pikes are the interlopers. They're the ones preparing for war. They're the ones who um, are going to throw off the stability here, put everyone in danger, and they're just going to take over. They're deciding the fate of this place. Are the three groups going to allow that to happen? And it feels like the kind of thing like Boba Fett is being, they're establishing you know, like his interactions with the gang where they say, look around, there's no work and they're overcharging for everything. Like he's going to be someone who is going to try to change the system. And so ultimately him 
stepping in, talking to the three factions, agreeing to get them to take on the Pike Syndicate so that they can establish a new order. And so he can help the people like these gang members have jobs and not be overcharged. Like he's going to establish a new world order. That's what protagonists ultimately should do in a story is have that kind of an impact. And so we're building towards let's take this planet back. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks as always for listening. I continue to ask the favor, spread the word about the show, hovering at about the same numbers week after week, and would really like to find an audience so that we can continue to build the show. And I'll leave it at that. It's been a pleasure. And I will talk with you again next week.